While it would be important to turn that around legally, those states that do have obscenity exemptions, we already have about seven that don't. And they're doing exactly the same things. So my question has always been, why are we not addressing these issues in those states? Welcome to the intersection of faith, family, and filmmaking. This is Fearless with Mark and Amber. I'm Amber Archer, and with me as usual is my husband, Mark Archer. The husband is here. The husband is here. So we are talking about the issues impacting our culture, society, and way of life from a biblical perspective. This is a husband and wife show sharing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, conversations with the family of believers, and showing the church at work through our filmmaking ministry, Fearless Features. You can learn more about this show and our filmmaking ministry by visiting our website, fearlessfeatures.org. It's also a great place for you to share these programs with friends and family and search the archives if you've missed any of these powerfully informative episodes. It's also where you can come alongside us with that one-time or monthly donation. Several of you across the country have pitched in to help us share the power of God's truth in contrast to the issues impacting our children, families, and way of life, and we can't thank you enough. This is a listener-supported program, so without you, this could not happen. We appreciate every single one of you. So today, we are picking up with Debbie DeGroff, part mm-hmm. four. Mm-hmm. And But Mark, you have something you want to share first. Yes, but first, happy 100th episode. A 100th episode? I know we made it. <laughs> before, I mean. we, before we did our first episode, we listened to Seth, Seth Godin. Godin. <laughs> talk about doing a podcast and we started our podcast in the midst of all the lockdowns that was fun that was interesting and uh he said in his podcast you're not really doing a podcast until you do at least 100 shows oh so here we are we've made like we've crossed the finish <laughs> so line now, now right? we're, as caitlin says now you're podcasters yes <laughs> so so our two-year-old almost three-year-old she loves to go and tell people that Mommy's doing a podcast. She's a podcaster. <laughs> She's a podcaster. <laughs> Speaking of Caitlin, she was my uh, she was my date on Saturday. Uh-huh. We went to a small town parade mm-hmm. and fair. Uh-huh. And um, while you and the older girls were handing out hot dogs uh-huh. with the church, with the church, I love to work with the church. I don't care whose church. We are all a family and all body of believers. And it's amazing and joyful and humbling all at the same time. And how many hot dogs did you wrap? 2,000. 2,000 hot dogs. You guys, it was it was really incredible to feed the community. It's and, like, it, was, and it was nice to be back because this stuff all got canceled last year. Yeah. Right? So everybody was just glad to be back. And, mm-hmm. um, and I discovered... That I was woefully unprepared because I forgot that people throw candy at you the whole time. It's it's easier than trick or treat because they come to you. And when you've got a cute little girl with you uh-huh. sitting next to you, they bring you extra candy. <laughs> and so I just sat there on the curb and they would all look at Katie. Oh, do you want some candy? <laughs> And I didn't have any bag or anything like that. So they just kept bringing it. <laughs> and I was like the pie, you know, the, the, the grand, the, the grand uh, master of candy. The Pied Piper. The Pied Piper of the candy kids. Uh-huh. They just, they just bring candy, you know, pay uh, homage it, to me. Is it, was it Rip Van Winkle who followed? Uh, who was this? Was the Pied Piper. The Pied Piper. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the kids just kept bringing candy over to Katie. And then she would, I had this pile of candy. 
on the curb next to me. And of course I was waiting for a hot dog. So in the meantime, I started eating (laughs) Tootsie Rolls. But when I got done with the parade, the girls and I, and I came to catch up with you. (laughs) So fortunately he had his cargo shorts on Yes, and now he's got two pockets (laughs) full of candy plus his shirt that he had on that had a zipper pocket in it and i'm like what is this and i had been and i and i of course had to tell you about how i had been violently assaulted by one child (laughs) with the candy with the candy (laughs) the girl was maybe six or seven and she's helping hand out candy for one of the one of the floats Uh and she she just walked up, walked right up to me and threw a sucker in my face and it hit me in the eye. <laughs> and then she ran off. <laughs> to drive by. It was, it was, I'm, I'm recovered now though. So I'm, I'm good. Oh, fortunately so. But I, um, on another note, I have a funny. Okay. Today. Like that wasn't <clears> funny <throat> enough? I mean, I'm. <laughs> well, cause I usually have these really depressing articles, but I found one that's just funny. I mean, even just the headline is funny. Mm-hmm. From Yahoo News, more than fi- more than fifty six thousand people have signed petitions to stop Jeff Bezos from returning to Earth after his trip to space next month. <laughs> okay, I had no idea any of this was going on. Like totally oblivious, don't care. <laughs> so Jeff Bezos is was the or is is or was the CEO founder of Amazon, right? richest man in the world right now. and he also is in the space race now is it blue horizon or blue, uh, what's his blue origin blue origin there so you go. there's spacex and blue origin yeah. and, the, and and so he I wants keep up a little he wants in on the game and uh he and his brother are going to do a 90 minute flight in the rocket that he's basically paid for uh-huh. and 56 i'm sure there's more now um the one with the most signatures is t- entitled "Do Not Allow Jeff Bezos to Return to Earth." <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bezos, founder of space exploration firm Blue Origin, said on June seventh that he and his brother Mark Bezos will fly into space aboard the New Shepard rocket on July twentieth. Three days after Bezos' announcement, two petitions were launched to try and prevent the billionaire's reentry to Earth. <laughs> You know, well, hang on, hang on just a second. I don't know if that's a job for the Space Force. So (laughs) tell me, could read, read what the, what the craft is called? Did you just say the new Shepard? New Shepard rocket. There have been so many things in the, in the news lately that I've looked at and, um, just the new Shepard, because who is Christ? He's the good Shepard. Well, this is Shepard spelled S-H-E-P-A-R-D. Oh, Okay. And I think that's a reference to one of the original seven astronauts. Okay. But still, they are good at hijacking biblical terms yeah. and using them for their own. Anyway, I just anyway. Thought, thought that was enjoyable. I haven't signed the petition yet. <laughs> Don't. It's but, not worth your time. But I do Move think on. it's funny. <laughs> so if it's ever there was a job for the U.S. Space Force, I think that's it. Can they do an intercept mission? Send them to the moon? <laughs> I don't know. So today we're starting back with part four from with Debbie DeGroff, a longtime children's book reader and researcher. And today she's going to um, dive into a little more about the obscenity exemptions. Now, we have spoke 
in detail about obscenity exemptions Mm -hmm. within the United States. We've been covering it, you know, here in Indiana and over in Nebraska. But there are seven states that do not have obscenity exemptions, which means that they are already teaching the um, illegal pornography basically. basically yeah um so so it's interesting and, and and i'm i'm excited to get her take on it and for everybody to hear what she has to say about obscenity exemptions but and we'll have a, a map so you can see the seven states that don't have any exemptions we'll put that on the blog and i'll leave a link to that yeah and if you for those of you who aren't familiar the obscenity exemptions um were put in place state by state starting in the 50s uh, through the 70s. And what it basically did, this was an organized effort by the uh, ALI, the American Legal Institute, or American Law Institute. And this was a template that was from what they designed as the Model Penal Code, and so when you go state by state, you you see that the language is all the same because it was this template that they took state to state and they, they decriminalized obscene materials in classrooms and public libraries. Mm-hmm. And this is why this is why these things are legal and able to be taught in the classrooms we there's people that are waking up to it and and we're the same we were waking up to it saying how is this legal well this is how it's legal it's been legal for a long time and it what it does is anything that you would basically go to jail for for disseminating uh, harmful. harmful material, pornographic material to minors is perfectly legal and protected in a classroom and in a public library. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the major points of the mind polluters. Mm-hmm. But Debbie made a good point that, and there's not, while there's nothing wrong with the efforts to overturn those obscenity exemptions, who is pursuing this in the states that don't have those legal protections mm-hmm. in place? Because I can guarantee these materials are still being taught in those states that don't have those exemptions in place. Mm-hmm. Well, and another thing that she's going to address is the functionally illiterate. And I think we have talked about this before as well. And it's, I I don't even know how to explain it because it's really, it's truly heartbreaking. It really is heartbreaking that people send their children to school, assuming that they're going to learn to read, Mm -hmm. learn to write, learn to comprehend but that's not at all what's happening anymore. And when she starts talking about functional, and we talked about this in links with Alex Newman uh, on, a, on an earlier episode. But a functional illiterate is a person whose skills in reading and writing are insufficient for ordinary practical needs. Basically, it's a person with some ability to read and write, but not enough for daily practical needs. So listen, you can't fill out a job application. You certainly can't read your Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, you, there's just not a lot. I mean, how do you read your medication? Mm-hmm. How you, just, just daily basic needs. And there was a statistical graph that I found, and I'm going to put this in the blog post as well, because it's, it's fascinating and heartbreaking all at the same time. So 20% of high school seniors can be classified as being functionally illiterate at the time they graduate. 
20%. At graduation. So it's one in five Mm -hmm. graduating high school, a diploma, but you can't read. Right. 70% of prisoners in state and federal systems can be classified as illiterate. 70%. So of those one in five, Mm -hmm. (laughs) there's a high likelihood that they will end up in the penal system at Mm -hmm. some point. And 85% of all juvenile offenders rate as functionally or marginally illiterate. Not a surprise at all. Not a surprise at all. But very sad. Mm -hmm. And what's really frustrating uh, as Christians is when we look at the, the way that the church overall has largely ignored this mm-hmm. problem. Um, and we, and you made a good point. If they can't read, then they can't read their Bibles. And, I, and we were talking about it and I said, yeah, but I would venture a guess that half of the pastors don't read their Bibles anyways, because they're certainly not preaching it. Mm-hmm. You know, they just come up with sermons. Mm-hmm. Listen, you can bounce through high school. You can bounce through university. And if you know how to speak or you know how to raise lots of money, you can be a pastor, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so the church needs to be at the forefront of this. And there are churches that have made this their mission mm-hmm. that, you know, they have uh, they have classes for teaching English. They have mm-hmm. classes for, you know, helping people get their GEDs and reading and, and learning and to read mathematics yeah. and things like that. That is a good church. That's mm-hmm. a church that gets it mm-hmm. because when people are illiterate, then they are unable to function uh, even at the basic levels. What is, what is, what is that quote? It's um... give a man a fish. He'll eat for a day, teach a man to fish and he will eat for a lifetime. Mm hmm. Yep. And as a church, we need to be at the forefront of this, of education. We gave this up a long time ago. It's time to take it back. Yeah. Well, and I have one more one more statistic here. It's 43% of those with the lowest literacy skill live in poverty. Mm-hmm. 43%. That's almost almost half. I'm, this, sure, I'm sure it probably is half by now. I'll have yeah. to look and see when that yeah. came out. So the, the school systems that's, that are failing to even teach our children the basics of reading, writing, history, and math, they're also setting up our children for a life of poverty. Right. So the bottom line through uh, all of this- A life of poverty and work to the state. Right. The bottom line through all of this has been and continues to be parents have to get engaged. And you're going to hear Debbie talk about that again today. Mm-hmm. Yep. So let's give a listen to part four with Debbie DeGroff. I deal with censorship a great deal in my book trying to show you what it is and what it is not. And a lot of these authors actually would be happy whenever they're censored or when their book becomes so-called banned, okay? Because it ups the sales, truthfully, okay? But we have to talk about what is banned. What does that mean? We have a banned book week, which is the high holy week of the American Library Association every year. Okay, But what is banned when they have these books that are supposedly banned on every library display in America? How banned is it? Okay, banned would be North Korea where you're caught with a Bible. Okay, then you find out what happens with a banned book. So, yeah, we have to define the terms. 
But with censorship, I will sit there and say, I'll tell people, I am not a book censor. Okay, and some people have a problem with that because of the type of literature. Does that mean I approve of what I'm reading? No. And some of these books that I'm reading are so obscene and obscenity is different than censorship. It doesn't have that protection. Just because it's allowed and the publishers do it doesn't even mean that it's legal and it should be addressed. Instead of the librarian and the teacher, you know, and those people, it ought to be the publishers. They're responsible. They target these books, they publish them, and they market them for children and to children. But when you're talking about censorship and what is censorship, for all the years I've been doing this, if you get up and you complain about a book, if I would come into you and I would say, Mrs. Jones, I cannot believe you're having our children read this, and I read some excerpts. The first thing that was always thrown out was the fact, oh, you're a book censor. Like, that's the worst thing that could ever happen to you. You're a Nazi. You're a book burner. Or you're all of the above and more, okay? And a few select terms. But who is it that's actually censoring the books? You look at books, the libraries are weeding tens of thousands of books all the time. They call it weeding. They think that they're getting rid of obscure things they'll tell you or, or this book is damaged. No, it goes far beyond that, far beyond that. They're the ones that are weeding out. They're the ones that are throwing out. My friend is a teacher. And the other day they cleared out the library basically. And these had books that are some of your classics. Now, when they're always complaining about having money anyway, why wouldn't you give these books to the kids? I mean, for real. But you have to ask yourself, when you're seeing what happened with the Dr. Seuss, and it doesn't mean I'm a Dr. Seuss fan, but I'm sitting here and I'm saying, okay, when you get rid of that, you had a book about a birthday cake and George Washington. I forget what the title was. And they had to quit publishing that because the slaves were smiling. Who is doing the censorship? If it's okay for anything, to put anything out there and defend it, and if you object to it, you're a book censor, and yet you look at everything that is being censored today, and excuse me, excuse me, I'm not the censor. Tell me about what you found with obscenity exemptions and how it's affecting children in the classrooms and their libraries. Well, number one, there's at least seven states that do not have obscenity exemptions, okay? Which simply means, for those who don't know, that it protects librarians and schools. They're teaching obscenity that you would go to jail for, okay? But theirs is under the guise of educating, okay? So while it would be important to turn that around legally, those states that do have obscenity exemptions, we already have about seven that don't. And they're doing exactly the same things. So my question has always been, why are we not addressing these issues in those states? Now, one of the things that I have realized is when things are based on the Miller test as far as obscenity and that three-pronged test, that has to do with community standards. So more than 
telling you what I think about this, I have more questions than I have answers, okay? One of the things, if you lived in San Francisco and I lived in a very, very small town in rural Tennessee, you would expect that the, ten, that the uh, standards, the community standards would be totally different. So if in your state and town, something would be determined illegal, okay? A book, for instance, in those states that do not have those obscenity protections, you know, can you order that book? from one of these other states. You know, there's there's a lot of things that you need to think about in that. And the other thing is in all the years that it's taking to fight this battle, culture is deteriorating. So today, the community standard might be in a higher order where they would not tolerate such and such a behavior. But at the fast pace that we are going today, next year, might be perfectly fine there. So it's just interesting that the obscenity being based upon that community standards, it opens up lots and lots of questions. Uh, when you get to libraries, another question that we need to consider is, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Are you going to take every book out of the library and have a committee for each book? Okay. And so, you know, how long is that going to take? So we're each going to read that book. We have a week to do it and we come back and we have a consensus. And what is our basis then if it's just obscenity? Okay. So this one doesn't have obscenity. Of course, this one's anti-God, anti-family, you know, anti-everything that you can think of that is good and upright and moral but it didn't have any sex or profanity. So, okay, so this one's a good one. So let's put this one in there. You know, how are we in practicality going to deal with this issue? What are we going to do? And it is my contention, and it's not a contention that people like, but it's you as a parent, you are the one who is responsible for what your child is taking in. And when you're dealing with children's books, the most important thing is not always exactly what it says, sentence by sentence. The important thing is your child's 12 years old. What's their takeaway from the book? What is their takeaway? That takeaway is what's shaping their worldview. So it goes way beyond those obscenity exemptions, which we do have to deal with. And this basically needs a think tank. Okay, how would this works? when it has been for decades now, these books are saturating libraries. And then what are you going to do? Are you going to remove them from the children's section and put them in the adult section? Because according to the American Library Bill of Rights, a child can check a book out of any part of the library. And once you sign that library card, they can do that. So your best bet would be not to give your child a library card. Who takes them to the library? You drove them there. Do you need them to have a card when you're there with your card? You know, and that is one thing that parents can do. Well, Dr. Seuss, whose name is very common these days, he actually wrote The Cat in the Hat 
from a word list he was given of 220 some words that were from the basal reader list. Because what had happened, basically by 1930, the children across the board, I mean, there were exceptions, but word guessing, sight reading had been introduced and phonics had been thrown out. Of course, back then, the teachers that were already teaching, even though they must have used the basal readers, they were still teaching phonics. So as the years went by, there were less and less phonics and more and more word guessing, okay? And in the 30s, when this happened, what were parents doing in the 30s? They were trying to survive. You were going through a Great Depression. I mean, most people were just trying to keep food on the table, and it probably wouldn't have entered anybody's mind that they even had to question what was going on in the schoolhouse. So nobody noticed. Then the 40s came along, and what happened? Mommies, for the first time, were out of the home, Rosie the Riveter, the daddies, granddads, you know, uncles, brothers, they're away in war. The mommies are out there, they come home, they don't have that, that male there doing his chores. She comes home, she's tired, she's trying to take care of everything. She's not looking at the books. But by 50s in this country, things settled down. People started noticing my kids can't read. And there came Dr. Seuss because they hired him to write this book. It took him nine months to write The Cat in the Hat. Now, all the parents, and, and at the same time in 1955, Rudolph Flesh came out with his book, Why Johnny Can't Read. All right, so, so he's out there and he's screaming from the rooftops. And then they hire Dr. Seuss and he writes The Cat in the Hat and the rest of history. The parents thought, see, my kid can read. My kid can read. You know, they're memorizing, they're recognizing those words. And those words were the same words then that lined up with the basal readers at school. So one was reinforcing the other, okay? So this isn't saying anything about his content or Dr. Seuss character or, you know, whether it be good, whether it be bad. It's just saying that's what he was hired for. But in 1981, and Sam Blamenfeld mentioned this in his homeschooling book. Okay, in 1981, Theodore Geisel, Dr. Seuss, gave an interview with uh, Arizona Magazine, and he said in there that the worst thing that ever happened to kids is when they threw out phonics and instilled what he called was like Chinese pictographs. Mm -hmm. See, and that is what dumbed down. So you become more, uh, you're just in bondage to what somebody tells you or shows you because you do not know how to read, you do not know how to analyze and comprehend like the generations before. It was interesting when you were just talking about, um, you know, 30s, people are just trying to survive, they're not paying attention to the schoolhouse. Why are we not paying attention today? That's a very, very good question. And really it's because the parents today were already products of all of those decades. And so it's perfectly acceptable. It's an interesting point that Debbie made there about 
people not understanding because you're dealing with a generation that's already been raised in this. And in a couple of weeks when we bring you our interview with Mary McAllister mm-hmm. um, and Mary, we've got some interesting uh, audio from, and she talks about, we first met Mary in Nebraska. Mm-hmm. She came in from Virginia to testify at the Nebraska Senate hearings to try to overturn the obscenity exemptions there. Mm-hmm. And she references this exact same thing. Some of the questions that she took from the senators, mm-hmm. basically saying, you know, indicating that they didn't understand why are you trying to take away sex education? It was fine. I came up in it, mm-hmm. you know, same way. And it's, it is case in point of what Debbie just said, because you've got this whole generation now that are now lawmakers Mm -hmm. who grew up in this. But what they don't realize is that even as perverse as it may have been when they had sex education in school, it's 10 times worse now. Oh, yeah. Not even the same thing. And Maris, I remember Maris Bentley talking about yeah. The actual curriculum. Yeah. But there is just this fundamental disconnect, lack of understanding. And and some of them, you got to give them some uh, give them some slack. They just don't know what they don't know. Right. So it's up to us to educate the lawmakers as well as the parents. Hello, the mind polluters. <laughs> hey, that's the point of our film. <laughs> One of the other interesting things, and I, and I have another clip to share here. Um, Debbie talked about how... This all started in the 30s mm-hmm. when they started slipping this stuff into the into the school curriculums. Mm-hmm. And because there was a crisis going on mm-hmm. called the Great Depression. And then that crisis then led to uh, the Second World War. Mm-hmm. So there was another crisis happening. And by the time they realized, by the time families realized in the 50s, that, hey, my kids can't read. My kids can't read. Now it's too late. Mm-hmm. You've got basically 20 years of this in there. And I thought it was interesting because it reminded me of famously back in 2008. Remember the great financial crisis uh-huh. that was right around the time of the elections. Yep. That saw George Bush going out and Barack Obama coming in. And Rahm Emanuel, who is a wicked man, mm-hmm. he was one of his top advisors, and then he went on to be the mayor of Chicago, mm-hmm. and he's done a bang-up job there. Um, but <laughs> but now they have Lori Lightfoot. <laughs> but they, yeah, they've, they've so. gone from bad to worse. <laughs> uh, but Rahm Emanuel had this very famous quote, and I just want to play a snippet of this. This was him talking on a program for the Wall Street Journal. Mm-hmm. You never want a serious crisis to go to waste. And what I mean by that, it's an opportunity to do things that you think you could not do before. Things that we had postponed for too long that were long-term are now immediate and must be dealt with. And this crisis provides the opportunity for us, as I would say, the opportunity to do things that you could not do before. The good news, I suppose, if you want to see a silver lining, is the problems are big enough that they lend themselves to ideas from both parties for the solution. In the area of education, There's got to be fundamental reforms there as it relates to uh, making sure that we are effectively training the workforce. And I'm glad to see that one of the number, I think your second principle is an educated, trained workforce. You cannot be in an era of where you earn what you learn 
and have both our education system from K to 12, as well as our access to higher education, and I'm not just talking about four-year, but also community colleges, that needs a fundamental overhaul that is the bridge fundamentally to the future. Never let a good crisis go to waste. Mm-mm-mm. And this is Rahm Emanuel could have been saying this back in the 30s. Mm-hmm. It's the exact same mindset of the globalists, the liberal elitists, overwhelm the system so that people don't know what's going on. And that's exactly what they did in the 30s. That's exactly what they're doing now. Mm-hmm. And here we are. So there's nothing new under the sun. I was just going to say that <laughs> same thing. <laughs> Thank you. Meaningless, meaningless. <laughs> yep. Oh, my goodness. All right, you guys, we'll share this episode with your friends and family so they, too, can begin to understand what's happening to the youth in America. And be sure to visit fearlessfeatures.org to learn more about our new movie, The Mind Polluters, and how you can help share this information with as many parents as possible and to wake up the church. Thank you for sticking around to the end. We'll be back again on Tuesday to hear an update from Serena Dykeson, who we had on this show last year. She founded She Found His Grace Abortion Recovery, and I think you'll be encouraged to hear how God is moving through her outreach ministry. Thank you so much for sticking around to the end and listening. Have a wonderfully blessed day. 